It's great to have you guys. Um, we're in Matthew 8. We're going to finish chapter 8, and we're going to actually delve a bit into chapter 9 today. going to be a little ambitious. I'll be honest with you. I camped out in the last miracle recorded in the book of Matthew in chapter 8, and it took me a really long time to figure out how to get my head around it or get my, get my hands around it. I, I, I actually made some calls and conferred with some people this week who are far smarter than me because I uh, couldn't get my hand on it. So I, I, I coupled it with the next miracle to see what we could come up with and then actually kind of lived in that space and I think found some interesting stuff. I need courage from the Holy Spirit to say some of the things I need to say today that I, that I think are on my heart because th- there's, there's a potential to misunderstand, I think, where I want to go with this. So hang with me. I hope that builds suspense and not turnoff factor. Um, but Jesus is up to some crazy stuff. Like, he's doing some crazy stuff. So let's, let's just pray that the Holy Spirit would bless the word and open our eyes, because ultimately they're just words if he doesn't, right? So Holy Spirit, we would say, have your way in the room today. Open our eyes as we contemplate um, the movement, uh, the activity, even what Jesus sees. Help us to uh, see what Jesus sees. Open our eyes as we see the word. Help us to see ourselves. Above all things, in your name we pray. Amen. So, I'm not driving Uber. Was anybody here last week? <laughs> Trey started off by saying, hey, I've been driving Uber. Well, I'm not driving Uber, but it just feels like it when you've got as many kids as I have. No, the tips aren't great. Um, just thought I would tell you that. We've been tracking with Jesus. We've heard him teach. Sermon on the Mount, probably the most important collection of teachings surrounding the ministry of Jesus that you could ever find in one location earth-shattering, planet-moving stuff. Um, If we've read it enough to where it becomes mundane, I would say we have to really beg the Holy Spirit to open our eyes again. That's as good a teaching as as we're going to get in one place. So we've done that, right? We heard him summarize his own teachings with the following sort of summary, which I love, I love. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Towards the end of Matthew 7. Then we saw Jesus move into action. We saw him touch the untouchable or the outcast, the outsider, and disappointingly, Jen had to go there, the insider too. And I, she could have left that part off and I would have been pretty happy. Do you guys remember that? He touched the outsider, the outcast and the insider. And, I, and I'll confess, it's the insider that makes me the angriest. It's those who live in near proximity to Jesus who have not processed his lordship that just aggravate me. And I just gave myself away that that's me. If you heard that, if you listen deeply. Does that make sense? Is anybody, is anybody with me this morning? I'm all about the homeless person. I'm all about the person on the outside. I'm all about those who have been marginalized, but it's difficult for me to understand sometimes my own tribe in its various shades, right? Wow. I guess that's uh, maybe more controversial than I thought. But um, so we've been, we've tracked with Jesus who is teaching through the, the movement immediately following through the mic drop. Remember that? Yeah. Nobody remembers that. Then we move into the series. That was the best part of the whole, no, it wasn't the best part. It was a good part of the series. Then we move into a series of teachings where Trey uh, summarized it well last week by saying, this is, this is Matthew trying to establish the authority of Jesus. He's going to go on and do a series of things. They're going to push into every corner that would challenge who this guy was, right? An emerging rabbi, um, deeply entrenched in that field, but he's going to go different directions. And so I want to track with a couple of those things today. Um, we saw him cross the ocean, right? Well, the, not the ocean, the Sea of Galilee. And we saw them get caught in a terrible storm. And we saw the response of the disciples, and Jesus' response was unbelievable. And then he calmed the seas and he calmed the storm. And then they get to the other side. And what's interesting is, is that we know through Scripture from, from a couple of clues that where they, where they uh, hit the shore is now no longer Jewish territory. 
It's Gentile territory. And I'm just curious. That all means something to those of us who've been around the church for 100 years, but I envy those who haven't. Do you know what the word Gentile means? Do you know what that means? Let's, let's, we dialogue here. So what does it mean that Jesus would go to an area predominantly that was Gentile? Something that's not like himself. Okay, so unlike, what's that? Non-Jewish? Who said that? Now they're, okay, there you go. So an area that was predominantly non-Jewish. Does that, does that mean anything to you guys? Is that, is that word Gentile kind of, kind of new? It's not gentle with a capital G. It's actually Gentile meaning non-Jewish, right? So this very next move when he pushes into the boat and crosses, pushes across the water here is an interesting move because if you're building a hometown following, that's probably the wrong PR move. And again, listen, there are zero unintentional moves in the ministry of Jesus as recorded by the Gospels, zero. So I think we can interpret everything he does as rather important, okay? Cardinal rule, everything he does matters. Where he goes matters, what he sees matters, who he addresses in that crowd matters. All of these things matter. Okay, so let's pick, that, let's, let's pick up in Matthew 8 and let's read. Um, your Bible probably calls it, Jesus frees the demon-possessed men. Are you with me? Let's read Matthew 8, verse 28. We'll read through 34. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them a single word. He said, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. A single word Jesus utters in this entire story simply says, go. I told you Jesus hated bacon. For those of you who are, Sydney, he hates bacon. I'm telling you. I'm just telling you that. I told you he was a vegetarian. That's a joke. That's not really true. But if you didn't know much about geography, what can you tell by the cues in the story here as to whether or not he's in home territory or not? You know what I'm talking about? Did Jews eat bacon? Did Jews eat eat pork? (laughs) So clearly the writer of the passage is helping us understand he's now in hostile territory because you don't herd pigs if it's not kosher, right? What was he doing there? I'm just going to tell you this, and, I, and, I, and, and I've known this, I think, my whole life, but I think this continues to penetrate to deeper levels in my heart. Jesus was not a nationalist. He had zero nationalist ambitions. Now, was he Jewish? Of course he was Jewish. Did he work among that people? Yes, he did. But the very first things we see him do is push beyond that. He had no notions of nation like we have today. You know, the God bless America piece, right? How about God bless all the world and everyone in it? See, Jesus was confusing on many levels to those around him. One of those was because he did not have strong nationalist tendencies. He was going to go places and push places and touch people that were untouchable, that were outside, that were off limits, that for whatever reason were outside of the, of the dealings of God in the world. And I'm just going to tell you, before we feel smug about that, the church continues to have that attitude to what God is doing in the earth today. And I don't mean just ANC, I mean the church. We're, we're ticked when he moves outside of the walls of what we're up to, right? He does not have those sensitivities that we have. He will venture beyond, he will push beyond to the outer limits of those things. And it's so confusing. 
No sooner do they touch land. And it seems like these guys come charging after Jesus because they have a whole dialogue. And isn't it an interesting dialogue? Because apparently the demons that were possessing these men knew a lot about Jesus, didn't they? They call him the son of God before those around him were probably all that certain that who he was, right? We're talking very early in the ministry of Jesus. These demons identify something. I'm guessing the disciples had inklings, but it took them a long time before they were able to say, okay, you actually are the promised one. And not only do they understand who Jesus is, but apparently they, they know something about the end game because the very first thing they tell him is, are you going to torture us before the appointed time? So there's this interesting sort of weird moment. And I'm wondering if the disciples even caught any of this. But this interesting moment when the demons identify not only who he is, but at, at his very hand, they will in the end receive their, 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 their reward, which is going to be to be banished, right? With the devil and all his angels. Interesting encounter. I'm fascinated that it's one word that he traveled across the water to say a single word and it was go. You know, Mark and Luke preserve this story and they preserve it slightly differently, but Matthew who's making the case for Jesus' authority, has him traveling through a storm, impossible odds to say a single word to set these guys free. The disciples had some sense of Jesus' authority. They just saw the wind and the waves calm, right? But the demons, I think, had a deeper understanding of who this man was. How demonic is it to know Jesus and to still hate him? Right? How demonic is it to know the power that's in your face and to still hate him? And they begged to be cast into the herd of swine. Interesting situation. A couple of things that I think are, are worth mentioning. He sees, Jesus sees tormented people everywhere he goes. He sees people that are suffering everywhere he goes. And you know, interestingly enough, if you look deep into the story, there's more than one victim here, right? It says the town couldn't even go that way around the tombs. They had to travel the long way around because these two guys were so violent. So Jesus not only set free the two men who were possessed by the demons, but he effectively liberates the entire town. Isn't that interesting? A single word, and he sets both parties free. I think that story had a pretty, pretty easy solution. Whack the dudes who are crazy and set the town free. Just, just deal with those dudes, right? I mean, how, how hard was that to deal with? Easy solution, get rid of the bad guys. And if you're listening closely, you can hear the judgment in that outcome, the bad guys. And what's so frustrating about Jesus is he doesn't agree with me on who the bad guys because he sets those guys free too. What he did not apparently care about were nationalist assumptions about where he should and should not be and the economic interests of the town in question. Right? The first thing they do is rush out and say, dude, take a hike, man, because like, that was our bacon. You just, you just drown our bacon. Isn't that funny? He didn't have those sensitivities to the things that we often care about. Human freedom is more important than economic interests. And that's true every single time. And that's why in America, if you will permit me to say this, we struggle so profoundly to understand the Jesus that we have owned and so deeply allowed to penetrate our national identity. We struggle to even see that Jesus now because economic interests come in the way and we don't often part ways with those interests to follow Jesus into those places where he would, would have us go. Now, I'm not making light of who we are and what we've done and what God has done in this country, but I'm saying economic interest is where the rubber meets the road for us, isn't it? If you drown my pigs, 
I don't know what I think about you. You know what I'm saying? He swerves outside of the boundaries. Wrong PR move if you're building a hometown crowd, but that wasn't what he was up to apparently. And the biggest ever revealing sort of shock to those around him was that he didn't have a people that was limited to a nation. All people are Jesus's people. All people are God's people. Even the demon possessed are God's people. You want to really tick Christians off today, write books about how the people that we all think are going to hell actually aren't. And you'll be run right off the reservation. You want to make people angry today, tell them that that God is up to other things in the world than just what they own in their own tradition, right? And you'll have, it'll light, the, the interwebs will light up about how you're the wrong person and all this different stuff. And sometimes I think tracking with Jesus in real time through these movements would have just been so confusing because this is not where it's supposed to happen. You can heal the demon-possessed guys right here in Israel. Just stay home, right? Stay in Capernaum where you belong and you can do this. And it would have made a lot more sense. All right. This here little scene proves to us that the Jews did not have the exclusive rights to Jesus' message. And they didn't have the exclusive rights to accept it or reject it because we know this town rejected it. They said, get lost. So Matthew, writing from a very Jewish perspective, is very clearly making the case that the Jews don't own this message and they're not the only ones who reject it or accept it. The bottom line for all of us is when we see Jesus revealed is to say yes and to follow that lead. That's what matters is a single response. The word yes, the most profound thing we can say to the work of God in the world. Yes, matters more than our history, our pedigree, our sexuality, our gender, our national identity, our religious affiliation. None of it matters. Like simply saying the word yes when Jesus creeps up into the scene and is active in ways that we we are present to. That's the only thing apparently that matters because if you line up all the cast of people that surround Jesus and his ministry on earth, it's the weirdest, most unlikely group of people to receive God's, the the incarnation of God himself among man. It defies logic. It's that single response that matters most. Yes to what he's doing. Yes to the authority to, to, to somehow grasp the fact that he can even calm nature. Unbelievable stuff. Just to keep things interesting, he gets right back in the boat. And at this point, if I'm the disciples, I'm thinking, dude, you're a rotten sailing partner. How about you walk? Right? Can you imagine the scare of a lifetime and, and trying to get across this lake? You know, it wasn't that large of a body of water, but it was very susceptible to crosswinds. And if Jesus says, okay, I came and I said, go, let's go back. I'd be like, ah, you sure? But that's what he does. Gets right back in the boat and they head right back to his hometown. And Matthew 9, we'll pick up there. I would have been a little frightened. I don't guess I would have been sleeping. I would have been watching the whole time. I would have been watching Jesus and watching the waves and watching Jesus. So he goes back, Matthew 9. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Healing of a man who was paralyzed. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. That would have been Capernaum at that time. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, what did he see? Their faith. Did you catch that? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. And at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said. Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, 
after he said, your sins are forgiven, he says, get up, take up your mat and go home. Then the man got up and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, very similar to the ending in chapter 7, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Fascinating stuff. Mark and Luke record this as, remember the scene where they lower this guy down through the roof? They pull back the thatching on the roof and they lower this guy down. Mark and Luke have Jesus already teaching, but Matthew cuts right to the chase. Remember, authority is the point. It appears that he gets right off the boat, comes right into town, and they bring him a paralyzed man. And he looks at him and he misses the question completely by saying, your sins are forgiven. This is like calling out the plumber who comes and fixes your roof. It's like an adventure in missing the point, unless you follow what Jesus is up to. This is actually pretty, a pretty big ex- escalation. You know, it's one thing to touch lepers. It's one thing to heal the sick. It's one thing to set people free from demons. But it is profoundly a different thing to say your sins are forgiven. Everybody knew that was God's job and God's job only. You remember in Psalms 51 where David is caught in his sin with Bathsheba and Nathan approaches him and says, you know, your neighbor had a single sheep and the neighbor was rich and blah, blah, blah. He catches him in his lie and David falls prostrate before the Lord and he prays this prayer in the Psalms, against you and you alone have I sinned. Which is one way of looking at sin, right? That it's committed against God only, therefore forgiveness must come from God alone. But that's actually a very limited view of what sin actually is, isn't it? Because it impacts everyone around us. It has a result on everyone around us. Everyone who's in contact with you is splashed by those decisions that we make. And so Jesus deepening even very, that, that very understanding of sin and sickness just goes right to the root of the deal and says, your sins are forgiven and ignites a firestorm on the blogosphere. It's controversial. Everybody knows only God can forgive sins. But what I love about these two stories in tandem is that Jesus identifies for the first time real evil for us. Now, if you were a contemporary thinker of Jesus' time, you would have looked at the two demon-possessed men and said, that's a result of your own choices. You did some evil, either you or your parents, in some way, you deserve that because they looked at disease and and, and those kinds of things as deserving things that people deserved for doing evil. So we would have rolled up on the wooden boat and we would have seen these two guys going, ooh, whatever they were doing. I'm imagining old sci-fi movies, right? We would have looked at that and said, that's evil, right? But fascinating, Jesus doesn't name that evil. He crosses back across the water and the man who was paralyzed, clearly, we know in scripture that there are multiple times where people come to Jesus and said, why are they blind? Why are they paralyzed? Who sinned? Did they or did their parents? That was the thinking. So obviously the paralytic would have been evil or his parents or something like that. And yet for the first time in these two texts, Jesus actually identifies evil. Did you catch where it was? The people's thoughts. The people's thoughts. They come to him and said, wait a second, this is blasphemy to forgive sins. He sees their thoughts and this is what he says. Why do you entertain evil in your thoughts and in your hearts? I can't, can't tell you how much that has just been captivating my thoughts this week. I want evil to be concrete stuff. I want evil to be flesh and blood. I want there to be an axis of evil. I want to know the names of the countries and the people. I want to know it. Why? Because I'm so schooled at hating people. And we all need an enemy, right? To sort of stay sharp, right? Jesus slides in and out of these situations and he does not call evil what I just am so convinced is. He's so perplexing. It's an enduring frustration of mine, if I had to be honest with Jesus, because the things that I see as evil, he leaves unaddressed. He sees different stuff. He sees completely different stuff. He sees people living in oppression, but he sees people 
and he moved to set him free. He sees the faith of friends who said, we love this guy enough to risk public shame, to drag him, pull open a roof and lower him in the middle of a Messiah teaching, him, teaching whatever he was teaching. He sees sinful hearts as a much deeper need than disease. And he sees evil in the thoughts of accusers. Let me tell you, how well can we see what Jesus sees? Are we capable of seeing oppression and moving intentionally to set all parties free, the demon-possessed and the town? Because I'm all about the town and about whacking the dudes who are causing the problem, right? You know, Jesus didn't come to set the Jews free from the Roman oppression. You know why? Because Jesus came to set the Romans free from Roman oppression too. And here's the catch. The oppressor is victim too. And I know that's delicate and I'm not making light of what you've suffered. And I'm not making light of your story. And I'm not trying to tell you that you've not suffered. But the love of Jesus is the kind of love that sets the oppressed and the oppressor free. This is why he's not a national phenomenon. This is why he's not just a rabbi. This is why he's not just a teacher who came to set Israel free from the the thuggish boot of the Roman Empire because he needed to set free the heart of the thug as well. Does that make sense? He came to set it all free, every last bit of it. Can we see what he sees? Can we see the faith of those around us? Can we feel it? Does it crackle in the air? Am I capable, are we capable of seeing real evil in our own heart? Because systems that oppress reside in my own heart as well. This is why there's no hiding room with this cat. There's nowhere to hide. You can't be all good and be just fly under the radar. There just is no place to gain a footing and say, okay, we're all good with Jesus. He's our homeboy. We're all down with this. Because the moment we realize that, the next thing you know, it drops to a deeper level in our own heart. We realize that we are the perpetrators of systems that oppress Because we look at Jesus and we say, why would you go there? They're Gentile. Why would you touch her? She's a female. Why would you touch that person? Because now you are ceremonially unclean, which means a week out in the back 40 till you can get all clean again to come back into the temple. And we externalize these systems that oppress and Jesus wants to lay it all to waste. There is real evil in the world. Of course there is. But more often than not, it resides in systems that judge and discriminate and enslave more than in people themselves. You can eliminate the enemy and still have the system. And the love of God still wants to tackle the system. Even abusers are victims. And I know that's not a popular message. But it's true. And the love of God will set them free as well. Hookers, thieves, extortionists, outsiders, unclean, rebellious, poor, filthy, diseased, born in the wrong country, born of the wrong gender. They all have a place with Jesus if they can say yes to his lordship and his invitation to join him in that new place. Okay, let's talk about what we're doing as a church. Take a deep breath. I'm sorry. Getting all amped out here. Sun came up and we're all feeling froggy. Let's talk about what we're about to do as a church. Two weeks from today, we go downtown. And we serve the homeless. We serve the poor. It's how ANC was born. It's probably our deepest DNA strand. If you're going to understand this place, that's kind of probably where it begins. Uh, For some of us, that's a stretch. We don't know what to do. 
we don't know what to say. And for some of us, including me, let me just quit saying us and just say me. For me, the first two times I did that, it was awkward. Two years ago, we were here for it. Last year, we were here for it. And I'm just desperately looking for anything to do to not feel awkward because there's this weird thing going on in me. I don't know how to bridge the gap between where I am and where they are. And I see political things that have come through my mind my entire life in ways that I was raised that just looks at them and says, well, you're obviously because your choices and all of these judgmental things. And this is what I have been sitting with this week. The challenge of Jesus to look at people and see people who are oppressed. No blame assignment. No responsibility needs to be assigned. And God forbid I be smug and all up in my own space about how I'm all this and they're all that and I'm doing good and they're not. And it's because there is nothing in my life that is a result of anything that I have done except by the grace of God. There is evil in the world, but it's not going to be the homeless people or the addicts. It's going to be the systems that enslave people because God wants them all free. Every last one. If we're not careful, that will crop up in our own heart and we'll serve out of duty. And we'll miss the beautiful moment of human beings touching human beings across just whatever gap exists between us and where they are. It's absolutely unnecessary to decide who's right and who's wrong. It's unhelpful to decide who's up, who's down. It means nothing. And let me tell you what it'll do is wrap your heart in knots and make it that much more difficult to deeply love our fellow human beings, no matter what the distance may be. So here we have Jesus going to places that I think help us understand. He's going to stray. He's going to find evil. And where he finds it is dangerous because it's as much in my heart as it is in yours as it is in anyone's heart. It's systems that enslave and wrap people up. And so I just would, I would just ask us this morning just to, just, to, just to give ourselves to that and say, Lord, pull that out. Deal with that as we follow you through this ministry, as we follow you through your deeds, as we follow you on this interesting trek. Remove from me those categories of right and wrong. Remove from me and, and, and let me see the real evil in the world. Because once you see it, you have to attack it. But it doesn't have a face. It's ideology. It's systems.